Please do be seated, brothers and sisters. Welcome. And could you please turn back with me to page 939 of the Church Bibles, page 939, uh, to Zephaniah chapter 1. It would be really helpful if we all opened up to that page, because uh, uh, I'll be referring to it often. Page 939, Zephaniah chapter 1. And when you've got that, can I also you refer you to the uh, bulletin you received as you came in, the center page of the bulletin, uh, the white bulletin, you have a sermon outline for today, uh, and also one of the cross-references, the New Testament reading uh, there, so that uh, easy for us to refer to in a minute, well, in a few minutes. Uh, so, if you, But most importantly, page 939, Zephaniah chapter 1. Got all that? Let me uh, lead us in prayer before we begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. We thank you uh, for this Word that your Spirit gave to us through the prophet Zephaniah so long ago. Uh, and we pray that your Spirit will be showing us um, uh, the, the, your, your plans and your purposes uh, through these words that you have given. Uh, may he uh, enable me to preach this word rightly and in his power. Uh, may he open our hearts uh, to not only hear what you have to say, uh, but to respond rightly to you. Uh, so we commit this time to you. Uh, please be at work in us. Uh, by your spirit, through your word we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All religions are the same in the end. So I can pray in a church or in a temple to Jesus or to another deity, God still hears my prayer. It's okay to use religion to cheat others. God doesn't really do anything, whether good or ill. So I don't really need to, to factor him in when making decisions about what I do. You may never have had thoughts like that, or maybe sometimes you have. For people who follow the rhythm of the church calendar, the season of Advent is meant to be a penitential season. It's not just a time to prepare to celebrate the first coming of Christ as Savior, it's a time to prepare to meet Him in His second coming as Judge. And that's why the book of the prophet Zephaniah is an ideal book for us to read in the Advent season. Because in this book, the prophet Zephaniah warns God's people Judah, and the Holy Spirit warns us about the judgment that is to come. And his warning was to people who were thinking in the kind of ways we spoke about just now. But through the prophet Zephaniah, the Holy Spirit also holds out hope. Hope of great joy beyond the judgment. Hope that came alive at Christmas and will be ultimately fulfilled when Jesus comes back in again to bring in the new heaven and new earth at the end of the age. The book of Zephaniah brings both bad news and good news to God's people. And you can see that as you look at the top and tail of the book. And look how the prophecy begins in verse 2. He said, God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Well, that's pretty bad news, isn't it? Well, come with me to the last verse in the book of Zephaniah. What does it say? Right at the end. 
It says, God says, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. Sounds like good news, doesn't it? There's actually about two and a half chapters of bad news before we get to that half chapter of good news at the end. And so as we look at God's word this evening, and indeed next Sunday, we are going to see things that will make us feel uncomfortable. But that's what they're meant to do. God has designed his word this way because we really have to see how terrible our problems are before we can grasp the solution. We need to appreciate something of the desperation of our situation before we can appreciate the joy of release. We need to apprehend the, the, the gravity of the threat so that we can see the urgency of response. But when we realize how much danger we were in and how much it cost God to save us from it, we will love him and appreciate him all the more and we'll be all the more ready to celebrate the coming of his son at Christmas. In Zephaniah's time, God wanted his people to know the judgment they were about to face. And that is why in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi. In fact, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, probably King Hezekiah, which would make him a kind of like a minor royal, a distant relative of the present king who was, the end of verse 1, Josiah, son of Ammon. Now, Josiah was a very good king, but he inherited a very bad and corrupt and idolatrous kingdom. He became king when he was only about eight years old, and he reigned for 31 years. And after about eight years of being king, he began to seek the Lord. And in the 12th year of his reign, he began a process of reform to get rid of the idols from Jerusalem and Judah. And in about the 18th year, part of that reform was to rebuild, to, to, to clean out the temple, and, and he found this book of the law, uh, which was discovered when, when they were repairing the temple. Uh, and, and, and from there, the reforms kind of like went further. We're not sure which part of his reign Zephaniah prophesied in. Might have been before the reforms even started, or it might have been after they began, but before they're complete. And the prophecy is used to, by God to, to spur the Reformation on. But either way, the situation in Judah was, was still very dire, uh, as we shall see in a moment. Zephaniah begins his prophecy by speaking of the judgment that is to come, not just on Judah, but the whole world. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And then you know what? He, he, he describes what he means by everything, right? And when he does it, he does it in exact opposite sequence to the order of creation in Genesis 1. Uh, look at the first half of verse 3. He will sweep away man and beast and the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea. The picture here is like an undoing of creation, right? like at the flood, except it won't be by water, because God promised at the time of the flood that he wouldn't do it again by water. He will also destroy, in verse 3, the rubble with the wicked. Our translation calls it the rubble. It can also be translated the stumbling blocks, referring to idols. And so God will destroy the idols and the idolaters together. In fact, he will, at the end of verse 3, cut off mankind from the face of the earth. That's a pretty universal judgment, isn't it? But this universal judgment on the whole world 
is anticipated or foreshadowed or pictured by a smaller judgment. A judgment that would happen within a generation of Zephaniah. And the judgment will be on God's people. Now God says in verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So you've got the final judgment on the whole world and you've this anticipatory judgment on the people of Judah. And like at the final judgment, the idols, idolaters are destroyed together. Verse 4, God says, uh, continue from halfway through the verse, I will cut off this place, from this place, the remnant of Baal. Baal was a Canaanite bull god. And the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heaven. That is, they are worshipping the sun and moon and stars. And those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet swear by Nilcom, a Canaanite god. And those who have turned back from following the Lord, who stopped, stopped following him, and who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. God will bring judgment upon those who worship false gods and who've turned back uh, from him and from seeking him. Friends, please make no mistake. Idolatry is reprehensible to God and invites his judgment. Religion is no protection from God's judgment. It was not that these people were irreligious. They were very religious. But they had turned from the true religion, a full and wholehearted loyalty to God, to a mix of religions. They worshipped other gods. They mixed their religions where they were supposed to be God's holy people, set apart for Him. We all know that one cannot have a husband and a boyfriend at the same time. It's simply not right. And likewise, you cannot two-time God. You cannot serve both God and idols. You cannot be a Christian and also worship images. You cannot get married in church one day and then in the idol temple the next day. You cannot follow Jesus and also follow another deity. Or as the Apostle Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 10, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and then the cup of demons. God wants our wholehearted loyalty. He wants us to follow Him without turning back to the ways of the world. He wants us to be people who seek Him or inquire of Him. That is to be people, people who, who long to do His will and so listen to His word carefully so that they can obey. Let us take warning from the judgment of God on His Old Testament people and let us not in the words of the apostle, provoke the Lord to jealousy. In the next section, Zephaniah speaks about this, uh, uh, a day of the Lord. A day of the Lord is a term used by the prophets to describe the time of God's coming judgment. Uh, and so he says in verse 7, Be silent before the Lord God, right? no excuses, for the day of the Lord is near. He's going to say that again in a minute. And then he pictures the day in, in sacrificial terms. Verse 7 continues, The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. He's got everything ready for the slaughter. Because this day of the Lord is called, in verse 8, the day of the Lord's sacrifice. And what is the sacrifice to be offered? Well, the sacrifice to be offered is is Judah and Jerusalem. 
They are the ones who are going to be slaughtered in God's righteous anger. And so on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, God says in verse 8, I will punish the official and the king's sons. Right? These are the ones who had led Judah astray. And all those who array themselves in foreign attire, these are the priests of the foreign gods. On that day, God says in verse 9, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. Now, what's that about? Uh, stepping over the threshold, that was a, a practice of the Philistines uh, in their religions, as well as, in fact, in many other religions, even in Kale today, actually. Right? There are idols, temples, where the superstition is it is bad to step on the threshold. That is the, the part of the floor that marks the, the entrance to the temple. And so devotees have to step over it. And the picture here is someone who is so enthusiastic about these pagan practices that they bring it into the temple and they leap over the threshold in the temple. And God hates it when people disregard his word about how he should be worshipped and then import pagan superstition instead. But it's not just the idolaters and importers of religious superstition that God will punish. It is also those, in verse 9, who fill their master's house or their Lord's house with violence and fraud. And so we think that the temple in Zephaniah's day was not just being used as a religious center, but also a corrupt business center from which people were cheated. And then when they got in the way, even violence was used. And so God was going to take action. Because, friends, cheating and violence, those are terrible, terrible crimes. God will punish them. But even worse, when people use the name of God and things associated with him to carry out those crimes. God will not stand idly by when people use his name, his church, his ministry to cheat others. He will certainly bring them to terrible judgment. And so God speaks about what would happen on the day of the Lord, verse 10, on that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate. That's a, a gate in the north part of the city where the invaders would come from the north. A wail from the second quarter, probably a sector in the north inside from that gate. A loud crash from the hills where many of the idol shrines were located. Wail, it says in verse 11, O inhabitants of the mortar, probably another part of the city, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. The economy is, is, is ruined. And God will not only bring judgment against Jerusalem as a whole, he will specifically target individuals in it as well. He says in verse 12, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. The picture is of, of him carefully looking out, trying to find the people who are hiding from his punishment. And who are they? Verse 12 continues, they are those, I will punish the men who are complacent, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. These people think God is not going to do anything. They think they can get away with idolatry and cheating and violence. And it's okay because they're in power and no one can touch them. And they think there is nothing that God will do. They convince themselves he doesn't care. But God does care. And God will bring justice to the situation. 
God speaks about their punishment in verse 13. Their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. This is exactly what Moses had warned God's people would happen if they turned away from God. And the book of Deuteronomy ends with a list of blessings and curses, uh, blessings people would, God's people would experience if they obey God in the land, curses if they disobey. And on the day of the Lord, these curses from Deuteronomy would be a reality for them. But remember what we said earlier about the coming judgment on Jerusalem foreshadowing the universal judgment of the future. Another way of putting it is to say that the, the day of the Lord for Jerusalem foreshadows the universal day of the Lord. And so in the next section from verses 14 to 17, Zephaniah transitions from talking about the day of the Lord that was just about to come for Jerusalem to the final day of the Lord which is yet to come. Uh, there's overlap because you can use the same picture to picture them both. And the New Testament also talks about this coming day of the Lord, isn't it? Uh, Jesus says in Revelation 22, Behold, I am coming soon. Zephaniah uses the same kind of language in verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. It's coming. But it's not a happy day for those under God's judgment. Verse 14 continues, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. It's a bitter day. Bitterness is in the air. The mighty man cries aloud there. Mighty man crying aloud on the day of the Lord. For that is the day that God's righteous anger against human sin is finally unleashed in its fullness. And so in verse 15, the day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. The darkness and gloom in the pictures there are meant to remind us of God's judgment against Egypt at the time when he brought about those plagues. The clouds and thick darkness remind us of God's frightening presence on Mount Sinai. The trumpet blast and the battle cry remind us of the war and the devastation that it brings. And that is what the day of the Lord will be like. And on that day, God says in verse 17, I will bring distress on mankind so they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh or their internal organs rather like dung. Like Judas, whose intestines were spilled over on the ground from his rotting body, which fell from the rope he was hang, hanged on, humankind will face the awful horror of death under God's curse. Back in those days, a city that was being invaded would sometimes pay their invaders to go away and leave them alone. But Zephaniah says in verse 18, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. All right, when God brings his judgment upon the world, there is nothing that anyone can do to stop him. Everything on that day will be destroyed, verse 18. In the fire, in the fire, not water, in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. It's a very sobering prophecy, isn't it? Well, the day of the Lord, it did happen for Judah, 
within a generation of Zephaniah? In 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians after a terrible siege. Many, many people were killed. Others went off into exile. The temple was destroyed. The treasures were taken away to Babylon. That was the day of the Lord for Judah. It wasn't a literal day. Probably went on for a few months. But that was the day that God dealt with the sin of his people. But that was a long time ago. What relevance is that for us? Well, remember, the day of the Lord for Jerusalem was a picture, a model, a paradigm of the day of the Lord for the whole world. And the New Testament warns us that that day of the Lord is still coming. And part of the reason why we observe Advent year after year is to make sure we are prepared for that day, to make sure we have at least one time in the year where we're asking, am I ready for that day? Look at what the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 3.10. It's there in the handouts. And 2 Peter 3 verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that have done in it will be exposed. This is, this is Ephaniah again, isn't it? Peter is telling us that the day of the Lord will come. Jesus will come again in glory to wind up history. And that will be the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. The world as we know it will come to an end. Not by water, but by fire. And every single human being who has ever lived will stand before the judgment seat of God. And no amount of gold or silver will be able to save us on that day. No amount of property or EPF or portfolio. The earth will be silent before him as God unleashes his terrible wrath on all the ungodliness and wickedness of humankind. That is the day of the Lord. Now that is the bad news. What could the good news possibly be? Well, the amazing and in many ways surprising good news for us is this. The day of the Lord at the end was also anticipated not just by the day of judgment for Jerusalem, but by another day of the Lord. The day of judgment on Jerusalem not only prefigured the final judgment, but also another judgment. That day of the Lord was also a day of darkness and gloom over the whole land. It was a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of bitterness. On that day, the mightiest of all men cried aloud, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? as the full measure of the wrath of God against human sin was poured out on him. The Lord had prepared a sacrifice 
his own son. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, the just punishment was meted out for all our sins, all our idolatry, all our wicked thoughts, all our evil deeds. On that day, the curse that we are meant to be under for our sins was borne by him. The judgment that we deserve for the day of the Lord was taken by Jesus for us. Silver and gold cannot save us on the day of the Lord. But Jesus did by taking God's wrath on our behalf. And so, my friends, God has given us a way of escape from the day of the Lord that is to come. We do not have to experience the awful judgment of God because Jesus took it in our place. And God stands ready to forgive our sins if we will repent and trust in Jesus. So if you're someone here today who hasn't yet turned to Jesus in faith, can I, can I urge you, can I beg you, please, please come to him today. If you come to Jesus now, before that day, you come to him as your savior, not your judge. He is the only one who can save you from the day to come. For he is the only one who died for our sins. Please give your life to Jesus now before it's too late. And for those of us who are already trusting in Jesus, how should we respond to the message of the day of the Lord? Well, the Holy Spirit tells us through the Apostle Peter in the next paragraph of the passage we are reading from the handouts. He says in verse 11 of 2 Peter 3, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people should you be? Oh, he says, live lives of holiness and godliness. Unlike the people of Judah, we should avoid idolatry in all its forms, especially the mixing of religions. We should always remember that God does see, He does act, He will judge, and never, never fall into the trap of thinking that He won't. And because we know He is watching us, we will seek to live our lives day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, in front of Him, knowing that He is there, that He loves us, and they were answerable to him. Unlike the people of Judah, we need to be genuinely seeking the Lord and inquiring of him, being ready to repent of any sin that he might show us, and ready to obey his will as he reveals it to us in his word. And if we live that way, we can and should be, in verse 12, waiting for that day, that is, looking forward eagerly to its coming. And because we know that God is holding off that day so that people might repent, God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants people to repent, and so he holds off that day. He's patient. We should hasten the day, in verse 12, by not only repenting ourselves, but, but calling on others to repent as well. We have God's promise that we will not be destroyed with the world on that day, but instead... In verse 13, we will inherit the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. We will enjoy God and his people in perfect relationship forever. 
And so, friends, because of Jesus, the day of the Lord is not only a day of judgment and gloom, but for those who trust in him, it is a day of salvation and joy. Let us be ready for the day of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us warnings as well as encouragements in your word. We thank you that you warn us out of our complacency. You make us aware that actually we live before you, that we're accountable to you. And we know the day of the Lord is coming when Christ comes again we don't know when that is but we know it will happen and so we pray that you grant all of us true repentance and genuine faith in your son that we might live in a way that pleases him now and that when the day comes we will escape the judgment to be poured out on this world as we find our refuge in him. We ask this in his name. Amen.